Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. Grave number unknown at Kinsal Green. The facts of this story were vouched for by the late Honorable Alec Carlyle, who told them to Maud folks. The man who experienced this return was a materialist. He was self-made rich and a carefree publisher whose reputation gave him the entree both into the literary and the smart set. He admired brains and the cash value they represented, but he preferred to talk to titles, good-looking in the somewhat florid style associated with the Prince Regent. He existed solely for himself. He possessed no known ties, legal or otherwise. L, let us mention him as an initial only, collected few friends, but numerous acquaintances. These he wined, lunched, and dined at one or another of his clubs or else at a restaurant where the salt of the earth forgather. He knew to a nicety the degrees of the social scale and what status is demanded by Claridge's, the Ritz, and the Berkeley. His name never featured as a guest at Bohemian or theatrical gatherings. During his lifetime he walked in the row every Sunday, and so regular was his habit that one is tempted to wonder what kind of a contra has offered these superb individuals in another world. Aldous liked the idea of death, a signifying social extinction with all, in all probability, a protracted the ver du redu of the sick bed. Above all else, he detested funerals. Thus, in a thoroughly disgruntled mood, he forced himself one afternoon to follow a member of the savage when his turn came to be introduced to the family mausoleum. It was a dreaming day in late October. The air felt like a wet sponge. Sodden leaves squelched and squirmed underfoot. The cemetery chapel was cold. Altogether, an unpleasant outing, and you could certainly bank on the aftermath of a chill. When the last rites were over, the mourners, looking like a number of melancholy damp prows, exchanged trivial commonplaces on the deceased and then separated, the family to discuss the will, the acquaintances to remember the dead man in the particular aspect in which they had known him, L thought of him as a kindred spirit and a friend who never became the kind described as familiar. How much he would have disliked this journey on such a day. L, who was thoroughly uncomfortable, wondered why the clay soil of the cemetery manifested a clinging partiality for his boots, and sauntered slowly away to find his car. By some freak of fate, he missed his direction. He found himself, at last, in an older part of the crowded cemetery, where the dead sleep under lighter endless ornate coverlets than those bedded in the villa-like residences with spacious sleeping accommodation. An air of faded gentility clings to this forgotten corner. The graves are private but mediocre, and here L came up against a past known only to himself, and a handful of discreet intimates with convenient and elastic memories to suit all occasions. This past, like most pasts, was in the nature of a cross.
On it was a name, the name of a woman who had dwelt in El's secret orchard during his pre-publishing days. For years she had loved him in her own simple worshipping way, but unable to climb with no working brains and no money to speak of, she had gradually dropped out. El had heard of Elsie's death with the indifference born of selfishness. He had not even sent a wreath, since the address was in the suburban neighborhood facetiously described as the clerk's dormitory, and he simply could not claim any kind of acquaintance with it. Imagine the Bond Street florist's expression, the irritating words, let me repeat the address, sir, and the surprise comments, well, I never, etc. Fancy him knowing anybody there following his pompous exit. He had tolerated and neglected Elsie as it suited him. She had merely stood for the beginning of the crescendo cavalcade of amorettes, all of which had been powerless to hold him. Regal in his sensualities, he was always regal in his swift dismissals. El was conscious of a feeling of mental nausea at the sight of Elsie's grave. Why on earth had the woman chosen Kensal Green, when the clerk's dormitory possessed various local cemeteries in the offing? Then he remembered a nondescript aunt living at Kensal Rise, who had probably paid for the burial. The grave was weed-grown and bare of memorials, save a grimy bulbous glass case covering a blousy wreath of china flowers. The cross was weather-stained, suit-stained with the tears of London rain. The lettering needed relettering. He imagined Elsie lying alone in wet clay and deeper darkness, nasty sticky clay, like that which he tried to clean off his boots by rubbing them against the marble surrounds. All at once El took a sudden decision. He would find out the cost of doing up Elsie's grave. Someone might stumble on it as he had done, someone who knew the story and the name of the invisible mistress. He wrote down the number of the grave in a sumptuous pocketbook and then made his way towards the main entrance. Here El found his car, and was soon delivered from the thraldom of mean streets, to breathe freely in Mayfair. Once in his flat, he shook the clay of Kensal Green off his feet, rang up the office, and allowed himself to relax. He felt strangely stirred, shivered. Hope I've not caught cold, he thought anxiously. Bowden the butler, with the Rabelaisian mind, and the exterior of a benevolent bishop, noiselessly drew the heavy velvet curtains. Still raining, Bowden? Yes, sir, and a suspicion of fog. Were you dining alone, sir, or had you an engagement? El had no engagement. He would dine alone. Make an early night of it. Bowden watched his master out of the tail of his eye. Something's properly upset the old man, he thought, lapsing into the vernacular. And he was right. El was upset. The cross now represented the fly in the amber and the crumpled rose-leaf, as well as a skeleton in his well-ordered cupboard. Elsie, living, would have constituted a glaring error of good taste. Dead, her untidy cross was no less offensive. He recalled her memory, her fear of offending him, her childishness, her sentimentalities, how thrilled she was when he first began to spend occasional weekends in the stately homes of England, sponsored by a duchess with literary tendencies, who imagined herself the inspiration of the publisher who was going to be talked about. How lovely, Elsie would say. I'm sure you were the best-looking man there, and do try to remember what the ladies wore. Then he would smile his superior smile and tell her not to be foolish. 
This was 20 years ago. In 20 years he had achieved greatness. His lists were a galaxy of brains and names. The plain Janes and Elsies of his adolescence and early manhood had paved the road to more subtly refined adventures. It suddenly occurred to El that all worldly affairs end in a cemetery. He meditated on this aspect of life during a solitary dinner. He remembered Elsie's cheap cross, streaked with damp, slanting a little as if it were tired, set in a sogging mass of clay, and he realized that unless he married and begat children, he would be lonely in his passing. He also thought, with a touch of cynicism, that as most cemeteries are more or less out of bounds, they provide a safe excuse for the living to neglect the memory of the dead. And yet, some of the people in Elsie's world would queue up for hours for a spectacular first night. The workings of suburban minds were certainly interesting. Dinner over, El went back to the library. Bowden, with cat-like softness of tread, presently brought the tantalus and siphon, the cigars and cigarettes. El simply couldn't face the remainder of the evening alone. All this, he reflected, was owing to being weak enough to see the last of poor W.G., but never again would he venture forth in the cause of sentiment. He'd ring up Tubby, his stockbroker, to see if he'd come around for an hour. He lifted the receiver. What the... was Tubby's number? Why, he spoke to the fellow every day. Ah, he got it. Give me Kensal Green, he said, and then realized he was ringing up the number of Elsie's grave. Al told Alec Carlyle, the sole recipient of this ghostly confidence, that he could not move or even replace the receiver. He felt compelled to wait. A voice at first muffled, then gradually becoming clearer said, Yes, who's calling? Al gave his name. The person at the other end uttered a little gasp of delighted surprise, and L, with his blood turning to water, recognized the voice of Elsie. Why? It's never you, darling. Do you want me? Of course I'll come, just as she had always answered his one-time calls. I wanted to say, no, 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 but speech was frozen. I won't be long, continued the voice, but I was very far away, darling, when you rang up. Panic, fear seized El. He dropped the receiver. I can't stop here, he thought, and then he knew that he must await his visitor. When would she come? What would she look like? Surely she couldn't appear in her earth-stained shroud with a seal of corruption on her face. Damn it all! He wasn't afraid of any woman living, much less a dead one. Let her come. Even if she brings all the clay of Kensal Green with her, he thought desperately. He poured himself a stiff brandy and sat down. The flat was very still. Bowden and his fellow servants had gone to bed. A hoot from an occasional taxi set the superior air of Mount Street a quiver. The Tompion clock in the hall ticked and chimed time away. Sometimes a stray cinder fell on the tiled hearth. How long would Elsie be? As of an answer to his unspoken question, the front door opened noiselessly, then closed. Footsteps which dragged a little, as if their owner's limbs had recently been cramped, came slowly down the passage, heralded by a current of icy air. There were three soft knocks on the library door. El did not meet the visitor. He fainted and lay unconscious until early next morning, when Bowden discovered him. And believe me, or believe me not, said Bowden, when discussing El's unaccountable seizure, bits of wet clay were sticking to the carpet, and some was on his dinner jacket. Beats me how it got there. 
As for the hall mat, it was all mussed up. Why can't people wipe their feet like Christians without having to be taught to use the scraper beforehand? Al recovered. He ought to have become a changed man or a changed life. He was neither. He conducted a successful business as usual and died a few years ago when the season was at its height. After this ghostly experience, he developed two marked peculiarities. He would neither ring up nor take a personal call, and he only attended memorial services and never funerals. Also, when an enthusiastic amateur gardener at a country house party spoke of a clay soil being good for rose growing, L gave him a glance which would have withered the hardiest last rose of summer. The story of a child's friendship with the ghost of her great-grandfather, contributed by Dr. Francis Edwards, M.D. The name of Dr. Francis Edwards is included in those of the famous alienists in Europe, but as he does not wish me to enlarge upon his career, I shall content myself with saying that Francis Edwards is the most human and understanding of created beings, and like many others, I owe him a debt of gratitude which can never be repaid. When I wrote to Dr. Edwards and asked him if he knew a true ghost story suitable for conclusion in his volume, he replied that he did, and would gladly relate all the circumstances connected with it. It's too complicated to write, he said. I met Dr. Edwards, and here is the story. During the period when I was acting as medical superintendent at Camberwell House, said Dr. Edwards, an old gentleman used to come at intervals to visit a patient. I fancied some distant connection, and I often had a chat with him. He was quite an interesting individual, and as you know how much the unusual appeals to me, I was not surprised when one day he asked me if I believed in ghosts. I certainly do, I replied. It is impossible to deny their existence. Because, said he, I once witnessed an extraordinary supernatural occurrence in my own home. I placed it on record at the time, and this I will send you. You will notice that I have included the most trivial details, but I have done so in order to support the truth of my statements. I have never shown the document to anyone. I am morbidly sensitive at the possibility of being laughed at, and even if you relegate me as just over the borderline between sanity and insanity, you will not fail to be interested in what I have set down. I was interested, and later a lengthy manuscript of two hundred pages arrived. As my acquaintance said, all details had been most painstakingly noted, ensuring of unnecessary redundancies. This is what happened a few years ago in an old terrace house at Bath. This particular family had lived at Bath for generations, but the Mr. R. I knew was blessed or cursed with the spirit of adventure, and his restless blood urged them to go to Australia during the gold rush of 1850. I was born, he said, when my father was over sixty years of age, so he was a very old man when I left home, and I had not been long in Australia before he died, leaving me, amongst other property, our house at Bath. I had no inclination to return, and as I intended to lead my life on broader and more unconventional lines, I instructed our lawyer to see that the house was kept in good order and a responsible caretaker installed. I had inherited many family possessions, which it would have been foolish to allow to fall into disrepair, and I did not wish to disperse them. I married in Australia and brought up a family. One of my sons died a few years after his marriage, and his wife, who only survived him a year, left me guardian of their orphan daughter, 
then just seven years old. Mary was a happy little creature, a perfectly normal child. I mention this is necessary to remember in the face of what happened afterwards. We became very fond of each other, so much so that I decided to give her an English upbringing. There was the house at Bath, ready to step into. My affairs in Australia were so well ordered that our departure need not be delayed. My other children had made their own lives and were not dependent on me. I had no ties. When Mary and I arrived at Bath, I found that my instructions had been well carried out during these long years of absence, and the house and its contents were as well preserved as in my father's lifetime. Mary was too young to appreciate family portraits and period furniture, but she loved the old-fashioned garden, and as she wasn't lonely without playmates of her own age, I did not send her to school, but planned to educate her at home. For the moment, it was one long holiday for us both. Autumn came, and when the days began to draw in, Mary and I used to sit in the library, the child playing with her dolls while I read. The library was a warm, comfortable room, and we spent many quiet hours there. One evening, just before lightening up time, Mary, who was nestling by my side, before the fire suddenly exclaimed, Look, Grandpapa, whoever is the old gentleman sitting in the big chair with ears? He does look funny. He's dressed so oddly. And she began to laugh. There's nobody there, you silly child, I told her. Oh, but there is, Grandpapa, she said. Why? He's just nodded his head. I believe he knows me. I didn't see him come into the room, did you? Run away, and see if there are any letters, I said. I did not want to humor the child in strange fancies, so I lit the gas, and when she came back, Well, Mary, where is the funny old man? I asked. Mary looked around the room. Oh, he's gone, but he was here five minutes ago. Perhaps he'll come again. I do hope he will. I like him, Grandpapa. After this, the visitor often returned, and Mary described his appearance and dress so minutely that I was convinced against my will that the appearance unseen by me was none other than my old father, wearing the clothes fashionable in the first years of the nineteenth century, which had refused to discard for anything more up-to-date. It was useless to allow Mary to think that her friend was a ghost, so I let things take their course, hoping they would right themselves, although I could not imagine why my father had come back to haunt his former library, or why he wanted to get in touch with Mary. A few weeks lapsed, and incredible, though it may seem, Mary and her great-grandfather carried on long conversations, the substance of which he gave me verbatim, since, needless to say, I was never audibly or visibly aware of my father's presence. I've endeavored to set down some of the conversations exactly, as Mary repeated them to me, and when I told to ask my father about certain family matters, known only to himself and to me, the answers no longer allowed me to doubt the existence of a state of being beyond my comprehension. My last lingering doubts were eventually dispelled by the child herself. One day I said, Ask great-grandpapa what becomes of the little babies who die before they have time to open their eyes. Mary looked at the invisible occupant of the chair with ears, spoke to him, waited a few minutes then. Great-grandpapa says that stillborn children go on living in heaven, whispered Mary. But what does stillborn mean, Grandpapa? It's another word for death, I told her. After this, I never doubted that these ghostly conversations were real, as a child had never heard the word stillborn until my father used it. 
Proof conclusive, wasn't it? Winter passed and spring returned, Mary's first English spring, and one morning, when the crocuses in the garden flamed in the sunlight, Mary said, Great-grandpapa told me yesterday that he isn't coming here any more, because he says I'm soon going to live with him. Where does great-grandpapa live? I hope it's not far away. Why must I go and live with him? I'm quite happy here. But, brightening, I expect I'll be able to come and see you every day. My heart stood still. I understood my father's meaning only too well, but I dared not tell the child that his house was a grave in the churchyard of Bath Abbey, although the spirit which loved his little descendant was free of mortal environment. But Mary all unknowingly had received her summons to another world. Her great-grandfather never came again, and within a month she was dead. These, Dr. Edwards, are the outlines of the story. You will read the facts for yourself, but after this you will understand why I believe in ghosts. What became of the manuscript, I asked, hoping that I should be able to reproduce some of it. Unfortunately, when I left Camberwell House, it was lost or mislaid, said Dr. Edwards. But beyond this outlines of what I have told you, it merely contained a mass of unimportant data which Mr. R. considered necessary to corroborate his statements. You've got the real gist of the story. But one curious thing which I forgot to mention is that Mary's great-grandfather told her he had visited Australia and described her grandfather's and her father's house in Adelaide. As he had never left England, this is rather extraordinary. But personally, I have no doubt that everything happened exactly as Mr. R. told me. I kept on thinking about this curious manifestation from another world, so much so that I wrote to Dr. Edwards, asking his opinion why most of us apparently possess eyes which see not, and ears which hear not. This is his reply. Churchfell Reigate, April 4, 1936. My dear Maud, there is no scientific proof of my suggestion that clairvoyance or clairaudience is due to receptive faculty beyond that normally possessed, but it might well be so. The two senses, vision and hearing, receive their external stimuli through vibrations, the former via the ether, the latter via the air. It is known that in each case perceptions of a certain intensity or pitch can alone be appreciated with the light rays of the spectrum, for example. Those on the two perspectives, infrared and ultraviolet, are not so perceived. Should, however, some variation exist in certain individuals, they might see or hear that which is not for the common herd. The aura, described so often by a medium, is a simple example, and those more materialized forms, a more advanced one. So glad to have seen you yesterday, yours, etc., etc., Francis Edwards. This pathetic tale of a strange friendship shows the fearlessness and friendliness of certain children towards visitants from another world especially when these are in no way abnormal. Mary accepted her great-grandfather as someone who amused her and talked to her so naturally that she was not at all worried when he told her she was coming to live with him. There is an old saying, for a little child, little mourning, and as God is kind to children, Mary's grandfather has no doubt found her long ago in the starshine of the pleasant playgrounds of heaven. The Lover and the Beam, contributed by Anne Lady Selsden. In a recent article written by Mr. Osbert Sitwell in Nash's magazine, 
He says that ghosts and spirits phenomena generally are very often the production of Inui. Imagine, generally, of an elementary kind asserts itself to relieve tedium, and then self-deception follows. While admitting that some ghost stories are fabricated to relieve tedium or to stimulate the imagination, I must beg to differ from Mr. Sitwell, as my own experiences of psychic phenomena were not connected in any way with Inui. They just happened. And, if one can apply the word normal to the supernatural, in a perfectly normal way. A few years ago, some friends of mine bought an old house in Buckinghamshire. For various reasons I am unable to state its name or the postal address, the county is correct. The hall is situated in one of the loveliest spots in the many still untrodden ways of Buckinghamshire. The house, originally late Carolian and added to by some 18th century owner unconnected with his story, dominates the beech woods which surround it on either side until they gradually give place to undulating parkland. The grounds abound in imitation ruins, Greek temples, leaden and marble garden gods, and last but not least, a lake of dreams, approached in springtime through groves of lilac, spilling fragrance and color on your path. There's an old tradition that no ghost will venture into a garden when lilac is in bloom, but tradition must be wrong. Any harmless return could not have a better mise unseen than a garden where lilac rose itself in clouds of rosy pinkish mauve, gleaming like white coral in a sea of emerald leaves, or flaunting the sullen stormy reddish purple of the east. The H's are immensely popular. The hall wasn't difficult to locate. You received a welcome that gladdened your heart, so no wonder most people often discovered some pretext or another to motor down from town. One particular month of May, when I was feeling more than usually fagged out, it suddenly struck me that a weekend with the H's would be the ideal rest cure. I rang up Dorothy and proposed myself. I'm terribly sorry, Anne darling, she said, but we have a houseful. Won't next Friday do as well? I said how weary I was of the town and all its works, adding, I don't care if you put me up in one of the attics. I simply must come. After this SOS, I heard a hurried consultation, and Dorothy said, If I didn't mind sleeping in the long room, as she called it, I would be as welcome as the flowers associated with a month. I reached D in time for tea and small talk, and the square, open, galleried hall, from where one could look up to this top story, provided the setting for an effective conversation picture. The house party was in the best of spirits, preparing to enjoy every minute of the crowded hour, but to my surprise Robert, usually one of the most charmingly selfish and self-centered of mortals, went out of his way to apologize for the impossibility of putting me anywhere except in the long room. To be more exact, he fussed. I never knew there was such a room, and I've stayed here many times, I said. We never use it, he replied. You probably won't like it one little bit. However, I liked the long room, which we reached after a stiff climb to the unconsidered regions at the top of the house, and true to its name, the long room ran the entire length of the frontage. It was narrow as well as long, and the square windows, like sleepless, lidless eyes, looked down the breech-bordered avenue. Comfortably furnished, there was nothing unusual about the long room except an immense beam which crossed the ceiling immediately over the bed. Are you sure you don't mind sleeping here? asked Robert. Mind? Why should I mind? I retorted. The evening passed in the pleasant intimacy inseparable from the H's weekend parties, 
we were not hurried off to dine and dance in some strange house, or driven forth into the wilderness to the nearest cinema. We rested, talked, listened to good music, enjoyed the peace of the countryside, and realized the H's were past masters of the art of entertaining. Robert still persisted in his profuse apologies for the long room. I saw Dorothy look at him with an unspoken prayer for silence, but he paid no heed, and when good nights were being said, Robert almost insisted that he should once more show me the way to the long room. The night was chilly, a genial wood fire burned on the open hearth, the dancing flames showed up every corner, and I wondered for what reason Robert had protested so much. The oak four-poster bed was evidently a survival of the Carolian era of the house. The cruel work hangings were admirably preserved, and the colors of the exotic flowers glowed as if they had been embroidered only yesterday. The remainder of the furniture was modern period, and the only archaic note was struck by the absence of electric light. Too near the rafters, perhaps, I soliloquized when I saw the tall wax candles in the silver candelabra which had been placed in readiness to light me to bed. Now let me assure Mr. Sitwell that, at this moment, there was no vestige of Inuai about me. I was comfortably tired. I had all kinds of pleasant memories of the good companions I had left downstairs. I got into bed and drifted into the sea of dreams as soon as my head touched the pillow. I do not know how long it was before I woke with a sickening sense of terror, the like of which I had never experienced. It was as if existence had been suddenly destroyed and laid about me in ruins by a ruthless being who knew neither pity nor remorse. Added to this mental terror, I was physically afraid, in dread, not only of my own life, but of that of someone inexpressibly dear to me. I tried to control my nerves, when suddenly the bedclothes were literally dragged off. I struggled to retrieve them, unless somebody, unseen, was stronger than myself, so I lay in a huddled heap my face buried in the pillows while the heart throbs of a hitherto unimagined passion vibrated around me and formed dark unintelligible hints of some wild and despairing love at this moment i felt a cold rush of air from a hastily opened window and in the expiring gleam of the fire i noticed something dark swaying to and fro from the great beam something that twisted and struggled what was it what reenacted horror from beyond was I witnessing? Surely it was a man hanging from the beam. I was now too frightened to take refuge in the obvious and faint. But by some supreme effort of willpower, I clutched the bedclothes, wrapped them around me like a cocoon, and waited hardly daring to breathe for what might come next. Nothing happened. I was left undisturbed, and at last I ventured to light the candles, which fortunately did not burn down to the sockets before the dawn. The friendly daylight and the song of the awakening birds came as a benediction. I jumped out of bed, and as I did so I remembered the open window. To my amazement, the three windows looking over the drive were tightly closed. I knew I had not imagined the horror of the night. Where were the other windows? What had become of it? I carefully examined the wall. There was no trace of any window past or present, not even a bulge or a seam in the wallpaper. I looked at the beam, solid, ancient, and uninteresting in the fast-growing light. The atmosphere of the room was as colorless as it had been vibrating, as dead as the cold ashes of the fire on the hearthstone. But nothing on earth would induce me to pass another night in the long room. 
I was now sure that I had been confronted with a sinister record of a drama affecting three people in some tragic triangle of the past. At breakfast, Robert once again fussed in a way totally at variance with his character. Had I slept well? Yes, admirably. Really? I assured him that the simile of the top might well apply to my slumbers. It was doubtful. Eyed me askance, asked Dorothy to second his inquiries, and was frankly dissatisfied when her queries brought forth no result. During the morning, I recalled myself to London, although I realized that no sensible person is ever recalled during a weekend visit. Dorothy, always the understanding friend, accepted my unconvincing explanation and did not mention the long room. Neither did I. Robert, like some stormy petrel, hovered in the wake of my departure, registering a composite expression of mingled gloom, self-reproach, and acute curiosity. A succession of unforeseen obstacles prevented me from weekending a D during the summer, as I went abroad and remained away many months. Curiously enough, when I came back to England, the first person I met was a mutual friend of myself and the H's, and one evening after dinner I heard the ghost story connected with the long room. I was sure you had gone through it, Lady Selsden, said Colonel T. When you left in such a hurry, tell me, exactly how much did you see? I told him. Hmm. Yes, exactly so. Well, now, I'm quite justified in putting you wise. He first explained something which I had always looked upon as harmless fat of Dorothy's. Have you noticed that Mrs. H. never lets her beloved bulldogs sit up until midnight and always sends them off before eleven? Yes, of course. But what bearing can it possibly have on your story? Because she doesn't want anyone to see how terrified the dogs would become they were to remain until midnight. I saw it once. Couldn't do anything with them. The brutes were literally besides themselves with fear. And why? Because they know who comes back to the long room. There's no getting away from it. I said, begin at the beginning. The beginning is a story of an old man's infatuation for a lovely girl of 18, somewhere about the late 17th century. At that time, the hall belonged to the last of the family, a detestable individual whose sole idea in his old age was to amass more and more money and beget an heir, a seventeenth-century beauty who loathed her beast and failed signally in her duty to carry on the direct line, was virtually kept a prisoner at D. She was also ignorant that her aristocratic husband was a money-lender to young bloods with prospects, as well as gamblers and high-livers at Whitehall whose extravagant past made it necessary to face the present at an unholy rate of interest. Hence, nobody suspected that Sir J.D. was the person known as Mr. Silas at his chambers in Lincoln's Inn Fields, and no one at D. was told whither he went on his frequent absences from home. I don't know how love eventually came into the girl's life. At first the lovers used to meet in the park, afterwards in the long room, as the hall was run by an old housekeeper who was a martinet where her lady out-of-doors liberty was concerned. One night Sir J.D. returned two days earlier than was expected. He entered the hall by a side door of which he alone possessed the key. Having completely ruined a promising young peer, he had supped well and flushed with wine and in fine fettle. He went into the great bedroom in a pleasant humor to awaken his wife, but the bed had not been slept in. Fuming at the whimsies of women, 
Sir Jay hurried from bedchamber to bedchamber, only to discover no trace of his missing wife. He sat down to think things over, and putting two and two together, he remembered that there was an upper room, as yet unexplored. Wishing to leave nothing to chance, he first went into the library, where he unearthed a stout steel chain and a pair of handcuffs. He then made his way silently to the long room. The lovers were asleep in each other's arms, and at that moment the battled man must have realized what he had missed in life. The knowledge made him see red. He slipped the handcuffs on the wrist of one of the unconscious sleepers, and the wife awoke to see death staring at her out of her husband's eyes. To make a long story short, Sir Jay dragged the unfortunate young man across the floor and hanged him from the beam with a steel chain. You see, Lady Selsden, the victim, couldn't lift a hand to save himself, and Sir Jay's superhuman strength enabled him to truss him up, although one wonders how the dickens he managed it. The terrified girl covered her head with the bedclothes, and her husband left her undisturbed until his final preparations were complete. Then, when the something that had once been a man was throttling and turning in agony, he tore the bedclothes away from his wife's face and bade her look at her lover. Every time she tried to hide her eyes, she was forcibly persuaded, until in a fit of maddened desperation, she eluded her husband, and opening one of the windows, jumped out and was killed instantly when her body hit the stone steps below. So that explains the sudden inrush of air, I said. But there isn't any vestige of a window. It was bricked up from the outside in recent years. However, continued the colonel, the hauntings have always persisted in the long room, and that's the reason the H's keep it locked up. I said most people would wonder why the H's continue to live there. Well, said the colonel reflectively, it's a lovely place. The hauntings are only acute in one room, so, barring the little trouble with the bulldogs, why not? After all, if you hadn't slept in the long room, you would have known nothing about the lover and the beam. Leave it at that. And I have done so until I was asked to contribute a true gross story to this collection of psychic phenomena. But as one story usually leads to another, I remembered a curious happening which befell me and my small son when I was staying with my in-laws at the Scottish castle they once rented for a term of years.